What up? Okay. All right. Um, eight years ago, Brennan was a freshman, and he sat here at Oasis, and eight years ago, I was a parent to a one-year-old, and I'm 10 years older than Brennan. And what I love about this ministry and being part of Oasis and being able to come back and preach and speak is the age of what it means to be a young adult continues to increase as I keep getting invited back. So thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, just over a year ago, my family, uh, I'm married uh, to Abby. We've been married for, I should remember this, uh, 14 years, almost 14 years. We have four children. And a year ago, uh, my family, along with Abby's entire family, got to go to Disney World, which I was told before we went was the happiest place on earth. And if you go with four children and a two-month-old, it's not close to that. It can be a little tough, but we had the privilege to be able to go, and it was 10 adults and 14 kids total, and it was way too many people, and it was really aggressive, but had some fun. And with Disney World, with going to certain stories and, 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 and meeting characters and going on rides, there's aspects of waiting that you just have to prepare for. And as an adult, as a 36-year-old adult, I could kind of prepare for the waiting, even though I'm not good at it. It was trying to get my four children to know outside of our two-month-old that like, hey, there's going to be moments where we're going to wait. And so me and Abby were prepping for it, and, and it's how all this, bring all the snacks, and what's the distractions we can bring in the midst of this waiting, and all the things. And I don't know about you guys, but again, I, I don't like waiting. I think in general, as a society and as a culture, like, we just don't like waiting, and it's proven time and time again that we keep coming up with inventions and things to become more efficient so we don't have to wait. Like, I didn't know if you guys know this, but you can actually have your groceries delivered, which is crazy. We've invented carpool lanes. Um, we, we, they're TSA pre-check, anyone? Like, to go up past the peasants that have to wait in line to get on their flight? <laughs> We got, I, I told myself a few years ago, I was like, I'm never getting TSA pre-check. And then we had four kids going to Orlando, so we got TSA pre-check. It's nice. It's nice. And so we, we make these things to become more efficient. So Disney World, knowing this and, and taking advantage of our unwillingness to wait, has created this thing called Genie Plus and Lightning Lane. And you can buy this thing and, and get this and be able to go through the lines faster and not have to wait as long. But again, with waiting, it's still tough no matter how long it is. So there were rides and things. My daughter, who at the time was six, uh, is her father personified. We don't like waiting. We're incredibly impatient. We are kind and generous and compassionate to a degree, but also are like overbearing and overwhelming for other people. And so as we're waiting in lines, especially if it was something she didn't really care about a lot, uh, she would be really overbearing and either start singing every thought that, she, that came into her mind or start to creep through the line and pass all these people to figure out how long it was actually gonna take to get to the place we were getting to. And we'd have to drag her back and she would lay down on the floor and be annoyed and, and, and just impatient and wanna get moving. And then something happened to where our one thing she wanted to do at Epcot was to be able to meet Anna and Elsa, right? Frozen was the best thing to her among anything else. And so you can't really help a six-year-old understand how long time is but we looked at our phone and we knew this was the time to do it. And it was a 70 minute wait to meet Anna and Elsa. And my heart sank and I looked at my wife who I love so much and I said, good luck waiting in line. I'm gonna take the three boys and do something else. <laughs> and so just assuming and thinking this is gonna be terrible. Like I, I'm excited to hear the stories of what happens from my wife on how Alice was doing. 
And so an hour and a half later, I call her because we're going to meet for lunch. And I said, hey, this is where we're going. We're here. We'll meet you there. And I just like immediately asked, how did Alice do? And she goes, she was the greatest person in line that you've ever, could ever experience or know. There was two little girls in front of her that were also waiting 70 minutes to meet Anna and Elsa, and she was actually helping those girls just in her compassion and kindness be able to get through the line a little faster just by distracting them. She was patient. She wasn't annoyed. She still sang, but like singing's awesome, so. <laughs> and, and it just clicked for me. It's like, man, we are really, really willing, no matter how long it is, to wait for that which we desire and want. And what's hard about the Christian life and the Christian walk and I think just being human, as we learned last week, is we will go through seasons and times where we will experience real suffering. And we will go through seasons that are really, really hard. And we will go through seasons where God seems to be silent and we feel abandoned. And what we want in those moments is not a bad want or desire. And what we want is for God to answer and to speak, for God to, to deliver and alleviate suffering. But I think why the waiting is so tough and, and it's not that those desires are bad, is what we want doesn't match up with how God is actually gonna do it and provide. So the waiting becomes harder and harder. What we saw last week is, as Brennan opened up Habakkuk and as we go through this series, is Habakkuk is a prophet and he speaks on behalf of God to the people, but also on behalf of the people to God. And within the Jewish people, within, within the people of God, the Israelites, there was oppression happening. The leaders, some of the leaders of the Israelite people were oppressing these other, the other Jews, the other followers of God. And Habakkuk was sick of it. He goes, how long are you going to let this injustice go? And then God responded and he said, I'm actually raising up a nation. And as Brennan told us last week, it's a nation that is actually the most evil and treacherous nation that you will ever see or experience in your life. But I'm raising up that nation to deal with the injustices that are happening amongst our, my people. And so Habakkuk receives that and he's confused. And so then he has another complaint and he has another question. And he says this, this is Habakkuk chapter one, verse 12. He says, Lord, are you not everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, this nation, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. So he's acknowledging the reality and, and, and the response that God gave. He's acknowledging that, man, what is happening in this persecution that we're experiencing within our people is wrong. So you said you're going to do this thing. He's acknowledged, so you're going to raise up them. And then there's complete confusion and he doesn't understand. And he goes to say, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? These Babylonians that have been going on time and time, going after nation after nation, going after city after city, plundering and doing evil... You are not even batting an eye to them. You are allowing them to do this thing. And now you're going to bring them to us. Why are you letting them keep doing what they are doing? Why? Habakkuk is confused. He heard a response of God, yet he's still confused. And then the end of verse 17, he says, um, he, is he, are these Babylonians, the evil, the treacherous, he to keep emptying his net, are they to keep destroying nations without mercy? And Brendan last week ended with this reality that we can get a response from God. He said, sometimes we experience discipline from the Lord and we need that discipline in order to, to have deliverance. And you get an answer. And it's not an answer you were ready for or expecting. And there's still confusion and frustration and you're unsettled. So we go back to God and we pray. And this is what Habakkuk does. And where we're gonna open up is in chapter two. 
and we see a disposition and a stance from Habakkuk that I think we can take two things, and overall throughout all of chapter three, we're gonna take three things that I think God is calling to in the midst of waiting for God to not just respond with an answer, but to respond with action in the midst of suffering, in the midst of needing deliverance, in the midst of needing to see God move. And so our big idea for tonight is this, is that God will and does respond in his perfect timing. What he's asking and calling for us is to be faithful in the waiting because there is waiting that's involved and it's hard and it's tough. So what we see in chapter two is how God is asking us to wait. So verse one, if you have a Bible, open it up, read this with me. It says this, this is Habakkuk after he just exclaimed and, and prayed, God, why are you letting these people, these Babylonians continue to do evil and treacherous work? He prays and he gets down and he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. It says, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Three things that I think God is asking us to be faithful in as we wait for him to respond in his perfect timing. One, in waiting, we need to humbly prepare for God's response with receptivity and expectancy. In waiting, we need to have a humble disposition as we wait on God's response. And the way we do that is with receptivity and with expectancy. Habakkuk says, so I, I, I've, I've, I've given you my complaint. I've given you my questions. I've laid out my frustrations. And he says, I will stand at my watch and, and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He assumes this position of a, of a prophetic watchman. Habakkuk will wait in earnest anticipation for what God will say in response to his latest questioning and complaint. As a watchman stands ready at his post to receive news from afar to tell warning of the city if there's an incoming threat, Habakkuk will prepare his soul to receive God's message. Time and time again, we read in the Old Testament and then just naturally just in the course throughout history, you had your city, you had your fortress, there were walls. And on these walls, they always had these towers that could go as high as you could go. Uh, the more uh, prosperous your city or nation was, the bigger the walls, the higher the towers. And they would place people at night called watchmen on these towers to be able to look for a messenger to come either in wartime to let them know, hey, the enemy's coming, or just in general, to be able to anticipate someone coming to give a message to the leaders of that nation. And so what Habakkuk is saying, literally he's saying he does this. He says, I'm going to the watchtower, to the ramparts, to the fortress that's on high. And I'm gonna wait eagerly expectant to hear a response and an answer from God. He's receptive. He takes a humble disposition to be able to receive God's answer. He takes time to separate himself from others, to quiet his soul so that he could await and hear God's response. Last week, Brennan said, and so beautifully, he brought in Hebrews and this reality as followers of Jesus, we get to approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. So in that, we can come to God with anything that we have on our mind to be able to say to him, frustrations, anger, whatever it may be. We can go boldly to him. He can handle any thought, any feeling that we have. He's not surprised by it. But I think in waiting, what we don't tend to do is then after all those moments, after the relieving, after the getting rid of the junk, rid of the frustration, rid of the questions, rid of the feelings, 
do we take the time to quiet our soul to be able to receive a response? In waiting, here's what God's asking us to do is start with, hey, tell me your frustration. That's an incredible invitation. The creator of the universe wants you to declare what he already knows is going on in your soul. Habakkuk is teaching us in the waiting to be receptive. He's saying, I know God is gonna answer. How can I quiet my soul for whatever the response is gonna be? So he is ready for God's response. He's not just expectant, but he gives time. He gives time to wait for God to respond. So God comes, and in verse three, he says, for the revelation awaits a point in time. He says, the things of which I'm gonna tell you, the revelation, what I'm going to do, there's no point in time for it. So he like, in his grace and in his sovereignty, he's already setting up Habakkuk to know like, hey, there's gonna be a waiting period for this. I'm gonna give you the promise. I'm gonna give you the revelation, but there's gonna be a waiting period. He says, it speaks at the end and it will not prove false. It's going to happen. I'm going to come through, but it's gonna linger. And this idea of linger is not just like a little bit of a slow response. I'm a slow apprentice. It's like, it's this sludging, like painful waiting to the point of you may not see this come to fruition. And not even that you may not see this happen, but it most likely is not gonna happen in the way that you anticipate and expect. But he says, wait for it because it's gonna come and it's gonna happen. God has reminded Habakkuk that he can be trusted even when he seems silent in the moment. So he quiets his soul. He waits for the Lord's answer. He's expecting him not just to answer with words and a prayer and promises, but to answer in action, to respond with movement, to restore and to redeem, to do what God can only do. He's waiting to receive and he's expecting that God is going to do it. The second thing we see in waiting, we must, we must remember that what God has promised Excuse me, we must remember what God has promised because it helps bring proper perspective. We must remember what God has promised because it helps bring proper perspective. Right in verse two, uh, he says, the Lord replied, write down this revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Uh, there's many reasons why we need to write things down. I don't know, again, like just a little bit of an open, like idea of, of who, or if you're into me, I'm really impatient. Um, I don't like waiting. I'm very forgetful. I'm incredibly forgetful. And I don't know if Habakkuk was forgetful, but there's a really, really profound reason and understanding of why the Lord is saying, hey, like I'm gonna tell you this, but he's reminding him, hey, you need to write this down. Because the lingering and the waiting that you're gonna have, it's gonna be longer than you desire. It's gonna be longer than the people probably want to experience, but write it down. Two reasons. One, when it comes to fruition, when that which I have promised and revealed to you happens, you're gonna be able to look back and say, hey, God said this is gonna happen and he fulfilled it. Two, we are really forgetful people. And because we're forgetful, because we need to be reminded of things constantly, we tend to in the midst of suffering, in the midst of God being silent, in the midst of seeing just a frustrating situation and desiring for God to move in it, we tend to forget the promises of God. We forget his character. We forget what he's told us. And so because we're forgetful, we tend to have a bad perspective. In those waiting moments, in those seasons where either God is silent 
where he's not moving, where we're praying for healing and it doesn't happen. And I'm praying for healing again and I don't know if it's gonna work out the way that I think it should or want or desire to work out. We start to get these little thoughts and lies into our heads and they become bad perspective of what is reality and what is truth. Because we're forgetful, we tend to believe or think that God doesn't see us. That's false perspective. Because we're forgetful, we start to tend to maybe believe that God doesn't care. I'm praying, I don't think you're hearing me. I'm asking you to respond and to be here. I don't see you move. Do you care? Are you here? And that leads to, are my prayers even being heard? Are you heeding that which I am asking and just delivering and giving and offering? And we get frustrated because we are forgetful. We get frustrated with what God is or isn't doing. And our minds need to be adjusted. We need to gain a proper mindset, a proper perspective. Because God's perspective is always different from ours. Let's just say always. There's moments where they align, especially when we remember his promises, when we remember his goodness, when we remember his character. But it's so easy for our perspective to get lost because we're limited by time and space and God is not. Our way of thinking sees only in part. God's way of thinking sees everything, the whole. And so when we remember the promises of God, when we remember this revelation, when we can remember that he has worked in the past and he's gonna work again, we start to gain proper perspective, which says, God, you do see. Even when I don't think you see, God, help me remember that you see. Even when I feel like you're silent right now, even when I feel like you're not answering in a way, even when I feel like you continue to let me down and wanting this people that I love to get healed, people that I love to get saved, people that I love to come to know you, Jesus, you still do care. When we remember God's promises, we remember that he hears every word we say, every prayer we utter. Habakkuk went to the tower, he went to the ramparts. He quieted his soul. He got away from people and he got to a space where he was able to see from God's perspective, to get out of his own mind a little bit, to get out of his own way of thinking, to be frustrated is okay. Will we allow ourselves to quiet our soul, to get a spot of being able to receive and expect the Lord to move and remember his word and promises because it helps us give us a, a perspective on our situation and, and circumstances. And so a part of this proper mindset, the Lord continues to answer and he replies. And in verse four, he says this, he says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And that's so beautiful because that idea of the righteous person will live by his faithfulness or the righteous person will live by faith is, is repeated throughout scripture. Paul, Paul quotes it twice. It's in Hebrews. It's all over. Because we need to be reminded that we as believers do not live by what we see with our eyes. We do not live based on circumstances and situations. We as the righteous, as ones who have been justified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, live by faith. And this idea of righteous is this. To live righteously is to live in accord to the words, ways, and wisdoms of Jesus. And so to live righteously by faith is do I trust that the ways of Jesus are right? that the words of Jesus are good. In righteousness, I wanna align myself in the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. In faith, I'm trusting that what you're saying is true and good and for me 
and for your glory. In righteousness, to live by faith means we live by the goodness, faithfulness, and promises of God. We're going to trust his words, trust his ways, trust his wisdom. He says the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. God is letting Habakkuk know he sees the injustice. He sees the treachery and the evil. He understands the movement of the wicked, and he is going to act. I'm going to remind you again of what we were told last week and what we'll move into next. Is that in the first two chapters of Habakkuk, we see the difference between God's wrath and God's discipline. In chapter one, God is bringing discipline in a way that wasn't expected. He's raising up this treacherous evil nation to come and bring discipline to the Israelites. But discipline always is redemptive in the long run. You see, if God was going to be wrathful to the Israelites, he would have let them stay in their own wickedness, in their own ways of thinking, to continue to live with injustice rolling around their nation. But in bringing discipline, yes, not in the way that was expected, he allows for them to continue to turn back to him because discipline is always redemptive, even though sometimes discipline feels like wrath in the moment. And that's why in a season of waiting for God to move and respond, it can be really tough. I'm thankful for the promise in Hebrews 12 where it says God disciplines those he loves. We're in moments where I need to experience a word from God that is really hard and tough. I know it's for my good because he loves me and desires for me to turn back to him. That's chapter one. And then in chapter two, as we go on through verses six through 20, we see the destruction of God. We see the wrath of God in play. He's saying, I see the wickedness of this nation. And yes, it doesn't make sense to you now of why I'm building up and having them bring about my justice to my people. In due time, they will get theirs. It's not up for you to worry about or think about, but believe me, I will respond because wickedness will never, will never fulfill, will never keep going, will always end. God makes plain that the Babylonian's day is coming and will be done. God will not be mocked. This brings us to our third point. So, so in waiting, we have a humble disposition to receive and expect God to answer. In waiting, we remember the promises of God because it helps us get proper mindset in the midst of whatever situation we're going on. And then finally, in waiting, we need to heed the warning of God. The next 14 verses are five woes or as a lot of the commentaries say, there are five divine threats that will come to fruition to those who are the unrighteous. It's wrath coming to those who keep living in ways that are outside the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. The words, ways, and wisdoms of the Lord. Woes for the unrighteous, though, are warnings for us. And so in waiting, we heed the warning of God. Verse six, it goes right into it. He says, will not all of them taunt him and ridicule and scorn saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. 
How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you, Babylonians, have plundered many nations. The people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Here God is telling us, and he's telling Habakkuk, that greed ultimately leads to destruction. And it wasn't just any kind of greed. It was what some scholars said is this imperialistic avarice, which is to say it's extreme aggressive greed to gain wealth and, materi- and, and, and anything material. He's saying this is your why of why you live. Babylon, you live only to gain things and to extort people, which to obtain something through force or that to extort other people for your own good. Those people, that motive of living will lead to destruction. But he says he has a promise. This is the threat. As the Babylonians, Babylonians have plundered others, they too will learn what it is to be plundered. The age-old promise of you reap what you sow, God will bring about. This is their why. The Babylonians lived for themselves. So the warning for us as followers of Jesus, at least in this, is do we know our why? Do we know our why of life? Do we know our why of, of, of following Jesus? What is our why? Do we live, as Paul says, with selfish ambition or with godly ambition? Ambition is not bad. It's what's my why? What's my motive? Is it for myself? Or do I desire to live again in the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus for God's glory? Saying greed leads to destruction. The wicked are greedy. They only live for themselves. Second one we see in verse 9 says, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Unjust gain leads to dishonor. This is their what? They desired to have the greatest empire in the history of the world. Like all powerful nations, because in power you desire control, and because you desire control, you're going to continue to go after it until you don't have it anymore. Because if you ultimately desire control, desire to be the greatest emperor for your own self, the greatest empire, the greatest person, the greatest whatever, if it's only for yourself, at some point you will get lowered and shamed. But the Babylonian's thinking was, and this is a beautiful imagery, he says... uh, uh, setting it, they, what they did is they set their nests on high to escape the clutches of ruin. And it gives this imagery of an eagle. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this at all. I should have pulled one up. Of where eagles will make their nests on mountains. And they will make them at the highest place possible in order for there to be no other predators that could come and attack them. And so he's saying the Babylonians, what you're desiring to do is to, you're trying to create such a safe, secure spot in the history of the world that you're gaining all these things, you're plundering all these things, you're, you're, you're not afraid of, of shedding human blood, that you desire in your control to get to a spot where you can never be destroyed, where you can never experience shame, where you can never be dishonored. And God's saying, that's not how this works. Eventually, all are brought down to the same level. There is no place that God can't reach. The proud will fall. And so for me, I was thinking like, man, what is, right? What as a follower of Jesus, what is the warning in this? For me, as I looked at that, man, what are the areas in my life where I'm trying to control security and safety? 
to not be touched? Is it a sin I'm trying to hide that I'm ashamed of? Is it a position? Is it an aspect of achievement? Is it an aspect of identity? What are the things I'm trying to control so that I feel safe and secure, that I'm not handing over to God? The third wall, and this is how they went about doing it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. It says, has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Here's a, here's a, a word of hope in the midst of this. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Babylonians built their proud city with the blood of other nations. The third woe, this third threat, involves those who establish their kingdom through violence, bloodshed, and, cry, and crime. Worldly-wise, Babylon stands as a representative of all nations who serve self rather than God. Violence ultimately leads to devastation. And from God's view, he says, man, in verse 3, the nation just exhausts themselves for nothing. You're plundering and pillaging and you're, you're using violence and bloodshed and you're just exhausting yourself because what you see in time, I see in greater. There comes a moment and a time where the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And I don't have a warning here for us. Here's what I do have. For those of you, of you who have been hurt, those of you who have experienced violence against your body, against your soul, against your mind, against your heart, I pray that you know justice will happen. I pray that you receive healing, that forgiveness, yes, could reign, but that you would know God sees you, he loves you. He has not forgotten you. But those who put violence on other people will be dealt with. And it's so beautiful, he says, there's a day when exploitation, when violence and injustice are no more. He says, there's a day that the entire earth is gonna be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The fourth wall. So we got the why of why they lived, the, the, the what of what they were trying to build, the how about they went about doing it. And then he gets specific. God gets really insanely specific here in, 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 in this divine threat to them. He says, woe to him who gives drinks to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin until they are drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, you dis and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you've shed human blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. There is a specificness in this where most likely this is actually what the Babylonians would do is they would get neighbors, other nations that they try to partner with. They would literally try to convince other people to join them, sometimes through threat, other, other times through false promises. And then they get them to a spot where most likely literally, but also figuratively, they would get them drunk so that they can expose them. And then literally that would happen, but figuratively what this is saying, and he says it in verse 17, the violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. They would convince these other nations, they'd convince their neighbors to partner with them in their own conquering mission, and then they would backstab them. Uh, in Lebanon, excuse me, <clears throat> Uh, they had, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is an inside joke that I'm not going to explain. But they had what was called Cedars of Lebanon. 
And they were these massive, beautiful, great trees that were used for a ton of things. Not just like, like imagine the redwoods, but greater. So not just visually amazing, but used for all sorts of things. I mean, anything you think of. And it says that in part, they partnered with Lebanon, the Babylonians partnered with Lebanon, and for no reason, I mean, to build their own things that they needed to build, but also just because they had power and control and could, they literally deforested the entire nation of Lebanon, destroyed that which Lebanon held dear. The warning here for us is how are we treating our neighbors and friends? Our neighbors, as Jesus tells us, could be our enemy, those we know and don't know. Our friends are those that we sit alongside with and do life with. And then the fifth wall. God proclaims the fact that the Babylonians will be deserted. He says, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? This is verse 18. Or an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. Some would say in many ways, this aspect of idolatry is, is worse. Where the first four warnings and woes were against people, human to human. This last one, God says, this is against me. You have put in my place what, that which you have created. Now, an idol for them were literally these carved uh, images and pictures of things that they would worship, uh, maybe covered in gold, maybe not. But we have idols in our own day. And an idol is this. Excuse me. Idol is anything that dominates your life taking the place of God. We do this through pleasure, through gaining wealth, through materialism, relationships, anything that dominates our life by taking the place of God. So the warning is this. How do you worship God as creator and sustainer? That he is creator and sustainer. Or do you worship that which is man-made? And to worship, there's aspects of how you're spending your time. Where's your treasure going? How are you using your talent? Where's your attention? What idol in your life needs to be destroyed? But he ends with a final word for all men. In verse 20, he says this closes the chapter by saying, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silence before him. In his temple, his place is heaven. It's not just a building made by man. It's an aspect in a place where not just God is to be worshiped, but its presence and power fill. God does not lie hid under gold and silver as the idols of Babylon, but fills and reigns in heaven and fills heaven and therefore supports and helps his people. He can never be destroyed, never be touched. He fills his temple, and then he says, let the whole earth be silent before him. God is saying, stop the idolatry. Stop the running to and fro, looking for the next thing to find pleasure or wealth or spiritual fulfillment. Stop the hustle and bustle of modern-day life that separates you from him. Be silent and still and know that he is God. And that's not a warning. That's an invitation. He says, I know waiting sucks. And... This entire chapter, there's this invitation to help us remember and know in waiting, we can have a receptivity and expectancy to know that God is going to move. He's going to answer. 
In waiting, he challenges us and reminds us to remember his promises because in the midst of that, he helps give proper perspective, but also encourages us and gives us perseverance to continue to move forward in the stuff that we're waiting for and waiting in. And then he says, just here's some warnings. Here's some questions to ponder. What is that in your life that is distracting you from me? What is that in your life that you have yet to surrender to me? What is that in your life that you haven't allowed for Jesus to be king over? He says, just give it to me. And sometimes those things are really good things. Sometimes it is relationships. Maybe it's a degree. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. And if you wanna hold on to the sense of security or safety and not really give it over to them, to give it over to them is to let go of control. We acknowledge that God is in control and need to because God knows what he's doing. There's a lot of aggressive things in the scripture. I'm gonna go back to verse 4, 14, and 20. 4, where he reminds us that the righteous live by faith. 14, where he, he says there's a moment in time where the entire earth, there's gonna be a knowledge of wisdom that comes where the entire earth is gonna know and have knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And then verse 20, he says, the Lord's in this temple. Can't be touched. His power and presence are immovable. So be silent before him and know that he is God. So in contrast to the proud heart of the Babylonians, the righteous are operating in faith to God. In contrast to the widespread conquest of the Babylonians, Habakkuk tells us that there will come a time when the whole earth is filled with a wisdom that acknowledges God. And in contrast to the dead idols of this world, the living Lord, the living Lord is in his holy temple. He teaches us that instead of looking at the vain, pointless things of this world, we should be looking to Almighty God and trusting him. Why? Because God will and does respond. We just need to be faithful.